Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast between your sports talk and long suffering fam. Your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We are getting ready to sort of try and work through the lockout mess in Major League Baseball. Besides our negotiating in Florida this week, they are trying to meet a February 28th deadline to get the season started on time. We will see what happens there, but we're going to catch up. What's going on with the lockout? We're joined by our legal correspondent, the guys who are doing the lockout coverage with me, Phil Freda. We're going to break down the big issues, tell you when you need to worry if we're not going to have a season on time, what could happen if a deal is not done. All that's coming up in just a bit. I also want to look ahead to the two-minute drill and talk about the Knicks because, shocker, folks, the Knicks are a disaster again. They have become a dumpster fire. I'll talk about why the two-minute drill. We'll get it all started here in just a minute with the opening tip. But before we go there, I want to mention here on the top of the podcast, you can subscribe to the app, Justin the Suffering Podcast. Search for an Apple Podcast, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering or Favorite Podcast platform. you find our episodes there. Your feedback and star ratings will help make the podcast even better going forward. So if you like something you're here, leave us a five-star review. Let your friends know. Help the audience grow. That would be awesome. Go check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. If you want to see the video version of these conversations, like my chat with Phil is going to be up on the YouTube page again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. And with that, we're going to dive into the opening tip of the week where I'll give you a little bit of catch-up on the lockout. And that is coming up right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time. We are hitting crunch time in the lockout. As of recording day, we're recording on Wednesday, the 23rd. It is day 84 of the lockout. We are approaching a critical point here. Spring training, as you are no doubt aware, if you are a casual sports fan, it's been delayed. The minor league players are there. The major league players are not. Any of the 40-man guys who are prospects are not there. They are part of the union. The league announced last week that the games will not start, the spring training ones, until at least March 5th. So, again, you had tickets to the spring training game. Sorry, you got to go get a refund, or you're going to wait and see what happens here. The negotiation pace has picked up a bit. This is good. They were not meeting enough before this. They met for about five hours yesterday. That includes some time where the sides were coxing on their own, discussing proposals and how to respond. They have five hours again on Tuesday, meeting again today. The pace is good. Right now, the goal is to strike a deal for February 28th. The owners have decided this was the deadline to start the season on time because we need four weeks of spring training to get the players ready to go on time. We went through summer camp a couple of years ago. It was about two and a half weeks to try and get ready for the season. It was not enough. Players getting hurt, a lot of injuries. Pitchers particularly have problems. So we want to make sure we have this thing as smooth sailing here. Now, again, I think there's a little bit of wiggle room here because if we get to the 28th, we're close, and, you know, they're trying to push the last things over, and the deal gets done on March 3rd. I'm sure I'll say, eh, three and a half weeks is good enough. Season start on time. The thing you're concerned about here, and so far over the first couple of days, there's been very incremental movements for the two sides towards each other. This relationship between the two is so non-existent that at any point, something could blow up that just ends the season starting on time. I mean, they're talking that's great. What we've heard that, you know, being in the room, talking to each other is better than doing over Zoom and having the lawyers do it. That's a positive. But at the same time, we also have the chance, considering how much distrust there is between the players and the owners, that something blows up. They both run out of the room blaming each other for being too greedy or so on. And then they're gone for a while. The question here is this. If a deal does not come together for March 31st, and I still have my doubts because 
just yesterday, the owners tried to get the mediator again, and the players said, no, we want to talk to you guys. We don't want to talk to the mediator. If a deal's not happening, we don't have opening day on March 31st. Do they keep negotiating? Or are we back to the staring contest of waiting to see who blinks? At that point, who is motivated to get the deal done to start the season on April 15th, on May 1st, on June 1st, etc.? This week's also critical because now you're starting to see this frustration building with the fans. And a lot of impatient this process, but you're starting to see a lot of people saying both sides suck. It's millionaires versus billionaires. The fans get screwed, which is also true. If the bell rings on March 31st and there's not a baseball game, you're going to lose a lot of people if you end the last two-minute drill. This happened in 1994. Remember, they were playing on the expired CBA. The owners attempted to impose certain conditions and refused to make certain payments. Players go on strike. World Series is canceled. 95 seasons delayed. Takes a judge, Sotomayor, to basically end the lockout. And what brought baseball back? A lot of steroids. A home run chase that was steroidated. Calvary's executive game streak. It took years with all that to bring the people back. Baseball has none of that right now. They're not going to let the steroids go crazy. You're not getting a home run chase. You don't have anybody playing 162 games in a season without having a massive consecutive game streak. Right now, these two sides, and by sides, I'm talking primarily to the owners, you need to get the deal done. So there's baseball on March 31st. If there is not, we have lots of problems. With that, we will go ahead We'll talk more about the lockout with our legal correspondent, Phil Frietta, right after this. All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast, providing continuing coverage of the MLB lockout. We are on day 84 of the lockout. The players are meeting with the owners every day in Florida, trying to get a deal done. Joining me on the phone today to break it all down, our legal correspondent and our main lockout guy, Phil Fred, is here. Phil, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Uh, How are you? Very good. And the reason we're not doing this on video, because we usually do, is that you're actually down in Florida now. Did we send, we give you enough airfare to cover the negotiations for us? Yeah, uh, I am down in Florida. Uh, Unfortunately, I am nowhere near Jupiter, yeah. um, down on the West coast of Florida, but yes, I'm, uh, I'm down here, uh, for a family vacation, uh, nothing, but I've been following, uh, from down here. Yeah. So let's also get the eyes up to date here. We mean, we did the big breakdown in December of what could happen here with the negotiations. <laughs> talked a little bit about, it. we talked about the Flores lawsuit a few weeks ago, but let's catch everybody up here. So how has this been going and like, what's sort of our timetable here? What's been going on? Uh, it hasn't been going as well as I had hoped it would or predicted, for that matter. Uh, there has was very little movement on either side until uh, a couple of days ago. Um, there, there was a few, I guess that was about two weeks ago now, the owners uh, invited the players to participate in mediation um, with a mediator. The players saw through that as a sham. Uh, and turned it down. Um, the Department of Labor Secretary for the Biden administration offered to help. Uh, I don't think anybody took him up on that, but it seems like uh, this week they've actually sat down and started to make some progress uh, towards at least narrowing these gaps. But there are, as we're going to talk about in this section, some, or segment, rather, there's some pretty substantial uh, gaps to close and not a whole lot of time to do them. Yeah, I mean, we will point out here. I mean, they initiated the lockout on December 2nd after the old CBA expired. The owners then did not pick up the phone for another 43 days. So I thought Rob Manfred said about how this is designed to protect the regular season and it's basically like uh, expedient negotiations. And now we've had basically for a while we was going, okay, here's a proposal. We're going to sit for five days. Then we'll talk again for about 20 minutes and we'll leave. Now we are in the last week of February. They're meeting for 
several hours every day, which the question obviously is like, you know, why weren't we doing this hours ago? Like, why were those weeks ago? Like back before spring training was delayed, but ne- it's better late than never. But the question is like, do they have enough time? And we're going to get to that today. It's like, do they have enough time to solve these issues? Because I don't know if there's enough motivation on both sides, particularly on one more than the other to actually try and not miss games. Right. So if, if your listeners remember, I, I predicted that, we wouldn't get much leverage on either side until after the Super Bowl, and part of that is simply the uh, public pressure. Now, nobody's really tuned into this uh, while football's going on, uh, so I expected that after the Super Bowl things would pick up. I did not expect, though, that they would be this far apart by the time things started to pick up, or that they would waste uh, so much time between the Super Bowl and when things really did start to pick up. Uh, I know it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but the Super Bowl was 10 days ago now. So really all of last week was kind of wasted. Uh, and and that, that would have been a critical week to try and narrow some of this gap, but it wasn't. So here we are. Uh, and we'll, we'll go through these points point by point, but uh, th- there's a lot of ground to cover. And I don't know if they're going to be able to cover it all. Yeah, we're going to start from the top and go kind of go down the issues here that we've mentioned here from, I think, sort of the ones that are like the least, like the least separation to the most separation. I think we'll start at the top here with free agency. And here's what we know right now, that initially the players were asking for age-related free agency. We're talking about back in December. It's like, oh, like everybody who's hits age 30 is a free agent regardless of service time. The players have backed off of that. The owners basically maintain their status quo, but they have agreed to eliminate the draft pick penalties for signing a qualifying offer free agent. So that means if you were going forward here and the Mets offer Michael Ford the QO, a new team under the new CBA would not have to give up a draft pick to sign him. I think that's a positive, but that's one of the few things that they haven't made any sort of progress on here. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's a positive and, and it's progress. However, uh, it is tied a little bit to the league's position on the luxury tax, which we'll get to later. Uh, so th- this is not something that they're conceding. It's something they're offering in exchange for getting what they want on the luxury tax. So, uh, so, so it's not a total win yet, but, uh, but yeah, there does appear to be at least a, a avenue to agree to get rid of draft pick compensation with free agents. Yeah, this is also one of those I feel like the players have a lot of ads, but this is not one that they were high on. So, okay, we'll let this one go for bigger gains. Yep, uh, exactly. All right, next up here, going to the expanded playoffs here. And Craig Carton, WFAN, I know he's tight with Rob Manfred, basically tweeted out the other day, oh, the, the proposal is done. The owner's getting their 14 teams, seven per league in the playoffs. The top seed in the league gets to pick, gets to the division series. You have the, the, the TV special where the players pick their opponents otherwise. The players are countering. They want 12 teams, six per league. So since we're getting expanded plus, we're still just debating how many teams are going to be in that expanded postseason. Yeah, uh, and and much like the, I thought the league was going to fold on the free agency issue, this is something that I think the players are going to fold on uh, if, if and when we reach a deal. Um, we've talked about on this podcast in the past a lot about why additional playoff teams is actually a negative for players uh, and it may seem a bit counterintuitive at first because you, you assume players want to be in the playoffs and have a chance to win and that's true but too many playoff teams waters down the regular season and allows for owners to uh, essentially be cheap and not not go for it all because they can sell their fan base on a, a playoff race or a pennant case for if you will for the seven seed. Uh, which, I mean, if you're a basketball fan or a hockey fan, you know, what does that really matter? But in a sport like baseball, it could matter. It's certainly conceivable that a uh, take your team, Mike. Uh, would would I want to play the Mets in the playoffs with Degrom and Scherzer, even if they were a seventh seed? No way. Uh, so that that that's why the uh, union is pushing for less teams. But I think that this is ultimately one where they're going to end up caving because more playoff teams does mean more money for everybody. Uh, and it, it keeps the fans engaged in the season longer. And it's not 
the difference between six and seven in a league is not huge from a player perspective. Yeah, the difference is in terms of the money it brings in. That, that this is Melanie that primarily benefits the owners because they have the new TV contracts at ESPN waiting to break in, like a hundred million dollars for the, the expanded divisional series, and they get the vast majority. That the players' playoff money basically comes from the gates on the playoff games, whereas the owners get paid on that. The players get paid in the regular season, which is why the owners care more about the postseason. Yeah, that that that's true, but it's I don't think it's quite that simple because more interest in the league means more money to the players ultimately. Uh, but that said, they're not going to give in on this unless they get some of the more important points, which we're going to get through later in the segment. Yeah. Next, we'll go to one that's basically agreed to, and they basically, Rob Manfred basically threw that out there as sort of a like an olive branch to the fans saying, look, we're making progress. The Universal DH is agreed to. It's coming to the baseball in the new CBA. So big takeaway here is that your age of pitchers hitting is over. The league is going to say, hey, sell it as, hey, 15 new high-paid jobs coming to the union. Whereas you don't know for sure if that's going to be the case because there are any teams that rotate the DH. I don't know how many National League teams are going to have a one tried and true. Here's Nelson Cruz in the National League times 15. I don't think we're going to get that. Uh, I'm not quite sure if, we're, if we wouldn't get that or not. Um, but this is something that I think everybody saw coming for years. Uh, it, it, it's time. The, the pitcher batting, we've, we've talked about that on this podcast a lot. It's Major League Baseball, was the National League in particular, was the only professional league in the world where pitchers were still batting. It's an antiquated system. It was obvious that it was going to go. The owners held on to it for as long as they could to prevent that, those 15 or so jobs from, from getting paid. But I think they realized at this point that there's no way to hold off on it anymore. It might not even be worth it because with the amount of money that these pitchers make, you, you don't want them going up there swinging a bat. Yeah, absolutely not. That one was probably one of the easier ones to solve. Now we get to some of the thornier things. But, but yeah. on the DH, uh, I just will add, uh, I, I could certainly see, though, I mean, why, I could see a National League team jumping in on a guy like Nelson Cruz or uh, from a Yankee perspective, a universal DH certainly makes a guy like Luke Voigt significantly more valuable player. You can trade him to the National League and he can DH. So, I wouldn't be surprised if a few National League teams have a full-time DH type guy. Yeah, I didn't say it's going to be a. I didn't say it's like nobody's going to do it. It says it's going to be a few. It's not going to be all fifteen are going to have a full-time DH. Yeah, but I agree with that. I mean, then that's all you got to do is look at the American League. Uh, how many teams in the American League have a true DH? Yeah, not the a Yankees, lot. not a lot. The Astros, not not many. Yeah. Now those are some of the thornier issues here, which is we'll go to the draft first. At this point, a draft, obviously, this is one of the big things that ties into the tanking concerns about the teams like the Orioles and the Pirates just racing the bottom and not really trying to field an act, a competitive major league roster. The draft lies and proposed by both sides starting in 2023. The owners want four teams in it where you can't pick in the top three two years in a row. Players start at 18, now the seven. They have restrictions built in how often teams can post the worst record in the league and be eligible for the lottery. Players also want to provide bonus draft picks to small market teams make the playoffs or post a winning season. So this is not one of those competitive balance issues where they're trying to incentivize like small market teams actually try and spend money on players. And this is one where the owners are trying to limit how many teams are in this lottery because they say, hey, like if you're bad, you got to find a way to help you get better. And they're going to hide behind that, I think. Yeah, uh, although I don't think we're too far off here. Uh, Four teams versus seven teams. you could see a compromise at a five or six number. Uh, I, I don't think the players are going to get the bonus draft picks, the small market teams that make the playoffs or post a winning season. I, I don't see that happening. Um, but but we're not too far off, and a lottery makes a lot of sense. It's what, what we've seen go, go on in baseball the last couple of years. Uh, you need to do something to disincentivize tanking, and it, it's a little. A little strange to me because the baseball draft is such a crapshoot that, I mean, who, I, I don't know. Does it really matter if you get the first pick? It's not like the NFL where you're trying to tank for the quarterback or something like that. But there, there, anything that could punish a team for intentionally losing, I think, makes sense from a player's perspective. And, and I think the owners, ultimately, I mean, they, they're proposing something here. They, they realize that. Yeah, fans I, are starting to really understand that this is a sham in some in some respects. Some of these teams just are not trying. 
Yeah, I think also the thing with the way the draft is set right now is not even just getting the top picks. The fact you get the biggest bonus pool with the slot money because they give you like the certain slots that you get the amount of signing bonus money and you could right, right. Ma- manipulate that to get better players on the ba- on the down on lower in the draft. That's sort of the theory behind like why you're going for those high- picks as high as you want. Yeah, yeah, but but the, the bottom line and and the simple truth here is the fans are seeing what's going on. There are teams in the Major League Baseball that are just not even trying. And you can't have that. You can't have teams that are intentionally trying to lose. Yeah, our teams will go entire offseason without signing like a single like big league player to their free to their roster as a free agent. Right, right. So if, if this rule, whatever the ultimate agreement is, can help disincentivize that even just a little bit, it, it's something that, that is, it makes like a lot of sense. And it seems like there's a path to agreement there uh, because the owners are putting something on the table that is, uh, isn't is too far off from what the players are asking for. All right. Now we're on to the three thorny issues here, all involving the money here. Arbitration up first. The owners have said it's a non-starter to change the arbitration eligibility, which right now is basically three years. After three years, you get arbitration eligible three years before you hit free agency. 22% of players... It's super two stats where they can get arbitration for four years. They did agree uh, to a bonus pool to pay up to 30 overachieving young players, $15 million. The players want super two eligibility to go up to 75% of players being eligible for that super two year. And that bonus pool, which again goes to players who are, are basically overachieve as youngsters. I think like Chris Bryant win the MVP in his second year. That pool is being funded by $115 million, which I know last week it was like a confrontable maybe all the players went up on how much money they want, but if you actually do the math and divide the percentage, it basically ends up they're trying to the money rate basically allows for more players to out will access that money. Right. Uh so this is like you said, this this is in my opinion, the second most thorny issue. Uh, the first is the luxury tax, which we'll get to. But uh they they're really far apart on this really really far apart uh and well i don't think we've mentioned it yet in the segment but there is a supposed february 28 deadline uh put in place by the league that if we don't have a deal by the 28th games will be canceled they're very very far apart on this term uh, and this is a lot of money that you're talking about the, the adding super two eligibility to 75 percent of players as opposed to the 25% or so that get it now is a tremendous amount of money because you're, you're essentially adding, like you said, a fourth year of arbitration for 75% of the guys. That, that's, that's big, big money that the owners would have to pay. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know how this one point gets resolved. They're, they're very far apart. Yeah. This is one where the owners business says a non-starter because then they're saying like, you know, like in competitive integrity, small market teams can't afford to keep players. And then, you have this sort of conspiracy theory floating around saying, hey, like, if this does go in here, then a lot of guys who are super two get get non tender and the market will be flooded with free agents. Yeah, uh, that that's going to be the league's response. And there's probably some truth to that. Uh, you know, my stance as a pro player guy, I, I think that ultimately they can they can eat these costs. Uh, they, they make enough money. But there's certainly some truth to that. So when you look at this arbitration point, I think people look at the bonus pool and say, oh, that, that's that's the big difference. The bonus pool is a small fraction of it. You're talking about increasing arbitration eligibility for 75% of the players. And that, that those are, all, albeit small individual awards, but if you start adding them up into an aggregate number, it's a tremendous amount of money. Yeah. So, uh, so they're far away here. You look at like basically like a couple million per team, basically you're looking at every every year. Yeah. Exactly. They're, they're, they're far away on this term. And, uh, and I don't know, I don't know how to bridge that gap. Yeah. I don't know how to either. The next one here, the minimum salary is once again, getting attention the last few days where that they've been wiggle room on this number a little bit. I mean, in comparison right now, under the last CBA, the MLB minimum salary is $570,500. Here's what is in the other leagues. The NFL, $660,000. The NBA, nine hundred twenty-five thousand two hundred fifty-eight bucks. NHL, seven fifty thousand. So even though the players of MLB play the most games, they have the lowest minimum wage. So that is something that they are definitely trying to fight for right now. Yep, uh, and 
the numbers that we got in the last back and forth uh, put them far apart, but not as far as they are in the arbitration. Uh, I've got the owners proposing a $640,000 minimum that would go up $10,000 every year. So you hit $680,000. The players, on the other hand, want 775 with an increase to 805, 835, 855, and 895. Again, kind of like the draft lottery, you could see a middle position here where you can meet at, at something close to the midpoint and, and call it a day. Uh, I think that the, both sides have arguments. Uh, you mentioned the players' argument that, hey, wait a minute, we play more games than everybody else and we get paid less. I think the owner argument on the flip side is, yeah, but there's more jobs in Major League Baseball than there are in the NHL and the NBA. So that's more people we got to pay. And when it comes to the NFL, yeah, there might be more NFL jobs, but the average NFL career is shorter. So your lifetime earnings are still substantially higher as a baseball player. So I think both sides have some arguments there. And I I don't think they're too far apart there that they shouldn't be able to work out something where they meet close to the middle. Yeah, I would suspect that as well. I've also mentioned here that there was a presupposal from the owners where they had raises sort of they had basically a, a flat cap of like 630000 as their minimum, but you couldn't offer a raise over. This way, there is now a system where there's raises increasing, but they didn't lock you out from offering more than the minimum to a player if you want to reward them for good performance. Think like the Mets getting Pete Alonso more than the minimum after he led the league at home or his rookie year, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that that's, that's helpful too. Uh, again, if, if you just take out the calculator and do the math, they're, they're not that far apart numbers you should be able to break that yeah and this one now this is the big one they have not even touched this yet i'll get to what jeff has to say about it in a moment here the luxury tax and obviously we've been talking about it for years about how a lot of teams is treating it as basically a de facto salary cap they don't want to go over it. you know the penalties for exceeding it are not that crazy right now the owner proposals that the th- first threshold 214 million dollars for two years 216 218 222 then the second threshold, 234 for three years, 236 to 240, the last last two. The, the biggest threshold, 254 for three years and 256 and 260. Penalties here are astronomical. 50% per dollar for beating the first threshold, 75% and a second round pick being lost for exceeding the second threshold, 100% is a dollar per dollar over the tax and a first round pick lost for exceeding the third threshold. Players back over here proposing $245 million, $252 million, $259, million, $266, $273 over the lifetime deals, the first threshold. Second threshold is $20 million over each of those figures. Third, $40 million over each of those. Penalties for exceeding those would maintain the same financial penalties in the current deal. It's about 20, 30, 50, and drop the draft pick penalties. And this one, they have not touched this one. There's been very little movement on this one. And this is the like they nobody wants to blink on this one because this is where the biggest money difference is. Right. Uh, so so and let's break it down again. Uh, starting from something that I've mentioned on this podcast a lot, and I, and I'm trying to beat it into the listeners' heads. When you're talking about salary caps and luxury taxes, owners want them, players don't. I know that, again, that sounds a little counterintuitive because you think that players want competitive balance and parity. They don't. They don't want people capping their salaries. They want to be able to make as much money as they think that they are worth, which if you think about it outside of a baseball or sports context, makes a whole whole lot of sense. If you were an accountant, you wouldn't want there to be a salary cap for accountants. Uh, So that's what's going on there. Uh, The owners want it because the cap, allows them to spend less money overall. They're limited in the amount that they can spend. So starting with that basic understanding, if you look at the two proposals here, you see how far apart they are. So there, there's, there's two aspects of the proposal. The first is what, what's the cap going to be? And you went through those numbers and they're far apart, but believe it or not, they're actually closer than the second part, which is what is the penalty for exceeding the tax. The way that the owners have structured it with those penalties, they are so substantial that it essentially turns the luxury tax into a salary cap. It, to go over it, it, it would be just 
crazy at, at those kinds of penalties. The players, on the other hand, have penalties that are more reasonable, such that teams might see it in their self-interest to go over it. Uh, somebody like, for instance, the Dodgers, I know have gone over often. You mentioned how other teams treat it like a salary cap. The Yankees are a prime example of that. They've treated it like a salary cap for the past two years. Uh, so so that you have to work on those two aspects of it. What's the tax going to be, and what are the penalties for going over it? And they're fair mountains apart on both both points yeah i'm gonna also throw out here some other things here like even with like let's use the Mets example where steve Cohen spent a stupid money so far of his winter getting a bunch of guys on the team before the deadline post i think their current payroll is about 253 million dollars roughly that's before they do other things like even like if steve cohen is paying 100 percent for per dollar every if he exceeds that third threshold like even he's gonna have have to say whoa i can't do that yeah. Uh, now he's somebody who, in the past, has said if you're going to go over the tax, you should blow it all, blow over it. But he was saying that under the old penalty structure, under a new penalty structure where he's paying dollar for dollar uh, above the tax, there's no way he's going to do that. Even Cohen's not going to do it. So, so what the owners are proposing here is essentially a salary cap. It's as close to a salary cap as you're going to ever get in baseball. Uh, for the listeners who don't know. That is why the 1994 strike happened. The owners tried to impose a salary cap. The players struck, went on strike. They avoided getting a salary cap. That's why baseball is the only major sport that doesn't have a salary cap. But this luxury tax came into play, and it is essentially serving as a salary cap now. And the player, the owners are proposing something that is, they may as well just call it a salary cap for yeah. the reasons you just said. Yeah, and as far as that's concerned, like like the ways penalties are, there's no way that will be the final threshold here. And there's also another component to this, which is the players, I didn't mention on the rundown here, but they want to sort of cease revenue sharing because they feel like, again, teams are pocketing this money and not putting it into their products. And the small markets are saying, we need this to sustain our operations. I feel like one potential option, I forget who said it on Twitter, made sense here, is basically suggested that the, the, the end point here sort of is going to end up being somewhere in the 220s for the initial threshold, the penalties will be down to match what we have last year. The players give out the revenue sharing complaint and let the owners still have revenue sharing. Like that's going to be sort of where we get there. But the question is how long it takes us to reach that point. Yeah, that, that would be a reasonable compromise. Uh, but that, that leads us into the segment. Uh, how long does it take to get there? Because there's this 228 deadline that's, uh, that's looming now. We're we're sitting here recording this on two twenty three, so that's and at night on two twenty three, so this day's shot too. You've got you've got essentially four days to work this out. Well, five, well yeah, one, you got five, including the actual day itself. And yeah, yes, yeah, yeah and, including the actual day itself, right? Yeah, and I will mention before we get to the actual deadline situation here that mention here there are no on field changes coming to negotiations. So if you look at the pitch clock, bang the shift. Pace of play that none of that's involved. This is all basically money. Yeah, uh, I think I think, and I think that we're too late in the game to get any of that stuff. This game, because uh, I think some of it would be pretty helpful. Uh, I'm I'm a proponent of doing something about the shift. I think I think the shift has hurt the game, uh, but you're not going to get that in the CBA negotiation. It doesn't mean you don't get it afterwards if, if they can agree because if you can agree on the money you could start the season and you could always make a rule change like that uh and really at any time and say okay it's going to be effective to start the 23 season uh but but it's not going to happen for the start of the 23 season yeah and right now we mentioned here the, the big development today was that we'd heard that there was a deadline of the 28th and i was speculating at the top of the podcast saying hey you know like if we're close to the 28th and they agree a deal on March 1st that, you know, they're going to, like, they would wiggle, do the wiggle room here and just get the thing done. But right now the owners are trying to basically say, hey, if there is no deal on the 28th, games will be canceled. Players will not get paid for those games. So right now they are basically trying to leverage the players again and say, hey, make a deal or you're going to start losing money. Whereas we're going to be, in it for the longer run, but you're but you're not. So I feel like right now we have a clear pressure point here of this deadline. If we do not get a deal done by eleven fifty nine on February twenty eighth, that the you're gonna start canceling regular season games. Yeah, uh, that that's so. What 
I guess the question is, what do I think the wiggle room is? There's always every deadline has some wiggle room, uh, but I don't think it's a lot. I, I, maybe it's a couple of days, two, three, four days. Uh, it, it just look at the calendar. It, it, it's not possible now. Obviously, you can maybe you can squeeze in games, double headers, and things like that. But uh, you're running out of days, and uh, but there's there's benefits in deadlines. Deadlines typically help people get things done. So I, I get the sense of setting the deadline. And, and like you said, the players don't get paid during uh, if games are canceled. So that, that is a economic incentive for them to work something out. Uh, but but I, I think there's a couple of two, three, four days wiggle room. Otherwise, we, we're going to be in jeopardy of uh, losing games. Yeah, I'll also point out here, I do agree that like, there is some wiggle room here. I was about the understand. I think there actually has to be progress being made at that point. If we're still doing these like five inch like, oh, movies every day, when we get to twenty eighth, we're still miles apart. They're gonna say if we don't have a deal at the end of the day, we're just gonna not start canceling games. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that that there's got to be significant progress between now and then for for that deadline to not be a real deadline. Yeah, and the question here, I think, is it's got to be definitely raised considering how little movement we really had over the last three days of them actually meeting every day. If we get past the 28th, there's no deal. There's not a deal that appears to be close. Like, how much longer do you think this thing could drag out? Because, like, I feel like if you blow past the deadline, I feel like it's going to be a period where they just go retreat to their corners again and don't talk to each other for a couple of weeks. So I, I've thought about it in a couple of different ways. One is, one school of thought would be, well, I guess both sides could say to each themselves, all right, what is a realistic length for a regular season that isn't, isn't going to be viewed as, as a joke. You know, like for instance, if you told me that there was going to be 154 games instead of 162, uh, I think everybody would be disappointed, but wouldn't really be much of a joke. Uh, that was how baseball used to be played. So okay. You can understand that. But once you start getting below that number, once you start getting into the one forties or the one thirties, then, then it's really starting to look a little bit more like a joke. Uh, so, so I think that that would be the first threshold where they would say, all right, let's try and get something done so that we can get a 154. Uh, if you pass the 154, though, where, at the point where you can get a 154-game season in, then I think all bets are off. I think you're just in potential standstill until somebody makes something happen. Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to predict now, though. I, I think I'll have a better sense of it in three, four, five days when we see how much closer they can get. But if they if they go to twenty eighth and blow past that deadline, they're far apart. Um, I don't know when how much longer it could be. It could be it could be weeks, even a month. Yeah, I think there's a couple of key facts you have to watch here if they go past this deadline. Just number one, like how long can the players stay united with the fact that they're only getting basically five thousand dollars checks from the union, which is not going to be enough to basically pay your rent, let alone support your family. So that's question number one. And question number two, in terms of the owners, like they have kind of hinted in the past, like you know, like we are willing to miss games and. You and I know, basically, being here in New York, that, like, the weather is bad in April, that they're not going to get a lot of turnout for some of these Tuesday night games in April. But, like, the question, the, then the pressure is that, like, if you do not deliver a certain number of games to the regional sports networks, like your SNYs and your yeses, they have to get refunded money here. So the owners will have to start to bleed money, too. So the question is how long, they have to have a number in mind of, like, how many games they're willing to sacrifice for they start to bend even more. Yep. So, so that, that's what I said was the first school of thought. And, and I'd add to that, because uh, some listeners might be saying, oh, come on, Mike, what are you talking about? Not being able to pay their rent. These guys are super rich. But take a step back. And, and when you're dealing with a union, part of the issue that you get is the drastic difference between some of the members. So what I mean by that is let's take a look at the Yankees. Garrett Cole, yeah, he he's fine. You pay him $5,000 a month, he's fine. Guy has made millions of dollars to get tremendous signing bonuses. Fine. But let's take a look at somebody else on, on the Yankee team. Uh, you know, go, go down, down the roster, uh, to, to a guy like, a, uh, I think Tyler Wade's actually not actually on the roster right now, but let's use him as an example. That's, that's meaningful to a Tyler Wade. He hasn't made that kind of money in his life. Uh, so, so that's where you start getting split between the, top earning guys in the union and some of the more rank and file. So from a union perspective, it's hard. And, and on the owner side, it, it kind of, you kind of have that issue. It's a little different, but you have it. That's when, a, you know, a house Steinbrenner says, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, my team makes a lot of money at the gate. 
and on the Yes Network. Uh, now, now I'm losing that money. Yeah, you know, maybe the guy who owns the Rays doesn't care as much. He's not making any money at the gate anyway. But uh, so you start getting some dissent in the owners' room also. So, so I think that 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 is a good point, and I, I view that as the first school of thought, and I think it's the correct school. The second school of thought, though, is they blow past the deadline and they say, "All right, uh, let's dig our heels in. This is this is a of we're at war." And we're going to get the very best deal we can, and we don't care what that does to the twenty-two season. And that's—that's—I don't think that's going to happen, but it's an outcome that any fans would certainly be scared of. It's one you can see too, considering that the relationship between these two sides is terrible. Yeah, it, it's and and there's precedent here. Remember that this, these are, yeah, there's different faces in there, but this is a league and a union that canceled the World Series. They canceled the World Series in '94. There's precedent here for these guys to say we don't care what happens to this season. We we they, look at what they did with the COVID. They had an opportunity to play a nice hundred some odd game season despite the pandemic and be the only thing on TV, and they couldn't figure it out. They played sixty games, so so there's animosity there. So I don't think it's out of the question that these guys dig their heels in and uh, and go to war with each other. Yeah, I certainly don't either. I'll throw out two, two other, one other thing before we get to our prediction when opening day actually happens. Here is I'm going to mention on like in, on the record here that I think the owners have done a decent job so far over the last few weeks of basically trying to like whether it's through their help with uh, certain writers for certain outlets, basically carrying their water, saying like, hey, like you know, Max Scherzer's driving a Porsche up to negotiations today, and stuff, and Jim or certain athletic writers who used to work for the league saying, you know, the players have to bend a little bit. We have to remind everybody, the owner's the one who initiated the lockout here. The owner, Rob Manfred, came out here and said, this is designed to protect the regular season. If we go past 28th and the league that locked the players out is canceling games because they don't have a CBA, that looks very bad on Rob Manfred and, and the owners. It should. It should. Uh, there's, there's always, like you said, there's always that, I can't really describe it. It's a, it's a weird phenomenon. But when you when you have billionaires versus millionaires, sometimes the public sides with the billionaires over the millionaires. Uh, it's, it's strange when you when you say it that way. But I think you're right. That's that. It's that these people, their faces are more recognizable to the fans. Fans recognize a Scherzer. They recognize a Garrett Cole. They don't recognize whoever the hell owns the Rays. I don't even know the guy's name. And and I'm a big baseball fan. So so. Part of that is that they're able to hide behind that, uh, but but I do think you're right that the fans are smart enough. If you get to a point where there's no game, to say, "Hey, wait a minute, you locked them out," uh, so it's not going to look good for the owners, especially with. And, and really, I I just don't think the league is in a position to take this, Mike. I, I think that the sport needs to get this over, get this resolved, to get back to get back to normalcy this sport this is a sport that has not been normal for two years now people forget that but uh the the 2020 season was just totally shot with covid i mean they did with the best they didn't actually no they didn't do the best they could because they couldn't even reach a deal but they they gave us something and then last year was it wasn't exactly a normal season if you if you remember uh, it was nice that we got a full full season in and for most of the year, fans were at games and so on. But you had periods of time where, like, entire teams were on the COVID list. So uh, I think normalcy is huge for this, this league now. They've they got to work this out. They've got to get spring training, and they've got to have a normal 162-game season. Yeah, and you mentioned here, like, if you think about all the fun we had prior to lockout when everybody was signing and there was a huge rush of this, like, Imagine how much positivity baseball could have. They get the deal done, and all of a sudden you have spring training going on, a bunch of big free agents are signing, lots of trades are happening, and everyone's getting excited for baseball coming back. And now, if you go past the day, nothing's happening. You lose a lot of that buzz you could have gained. If you get the deal done such that spring training is going on in March, the average guy is not going to care about what happened the last few months. Yeah, because let's, let's face it, the average guy doesn't care about February spring training. March, that's when people say, hey, it's, it's time for baseball. So to me, the goal would be I want spring training in March. 
can come April 1st or March 31st or whatever opening day is supposed to be this year, I want to play ball. Yeah, I've said, I've said on this podcast several times, I'll say it again here, that like, I think if you go to March 31st, opening day is supposed to be, and the Irish fan does not have met baseball, he's not in the stadium, he's not watching the Yankees in Texas, like, then you're having a major problem with the public because you're going to lose a lot of them. Yeah, I think so. And, and it's a sport that's already, it's already in jeopardy. It's, it's starting to, because people are sick of it. They, they, they just can't take it anymore. They're, get, they're getting sick of the cheapness from the owners. They're getting, uh, let's, let's try and be fair here. They're getting sick of the players. You know, these guys do make a lot of money and they're acting as if, if they're treated bad, like, you know, like servants. And, and they're really not to some extent. So I do, I get that. People are sick of it. Uh, and, and they haven't really been able to see normalcy. Keep in mind, too, Mike, the other thing that has kind of driven the fans a little, they're a little upset is baseball more so than any other sport has a mentality that we know better than the fans. And, and it comes from the analytics departments that all these teams have that, oh, no, no, everything that you know about baseball is wrong. We actually know how to play baseball. And fans have started to get a little upset about that. They got upset with it in the choices of managers. They got upset with it in the choices of players signings. So there's, you're already dealing with a fan base that's a little, a little like, hey, you know, this isn't really the game that I remember watching. And, and now you're kind of telling me that I, the game that I was watching for 30, 40 years is not actually the right way to play it. That's a tough sell. So, you're doing that, and on top of that, now you're, you're not giving me normal seasons anymore. Uh, this isn't even not, so. Not only is the sport not played the way I remember it, but but when it is played, everything's abnormal as far as season, the length. I, I think it's a dangerous time for baseball. Yeah, I'll throw two other things out here too. I mean, I will. I mean, in terms of like. I run a fantasy league. You were in it at one point. You dropped out a few years ago because you, it was not for you at that point. But like people like me run the leagues. Like we're not even starting the leagues right now because we're wait, we don't know when we're getting baseball. So like, why are we getting ready to draft when we don't know when half these guys are on teams? Sure. Yeah. And, and by the way, if there's a spot open, I'll take it again. <laughs> uh, I regret dropping out, but uh, but but yeah, um, that that. That's part of it, sure. Uh, and the, the second part of it, which we haven't even touched on, uh, I know you were going to say something, but before I forget, uh, gambling is now legal in a ton of states, way more states than it was the last time baseball was played. That's, that's tremendous revenue. That's, that's eyes on the TV. That's, that's eyes in the stadium. You, you, I wouldn't want to miss out on that. No, I wouldn't either. And I think... In terms of now, we put let's put some money on. on let's put our uh, money on out this year. Opening day is posted March thirty first. When actually will baseball regular season begin? I this is a guess because who the hell knows? But my heart is telling me that we're going to play on March thirty first. My head is telling me I'm not so sure, but. I'm going to go with March 31st. I'm going to try and be optimistic here. There is, for all the reasons I just laid out, there is too much money at stake for these guys to not sit down over the next five days and hammer this out. Get it done. And, and let's go play baseball on March 31st so that we can have a normal season. The fans want it. I, I think the fans are craving baseball. The postseason ratings are pretty good for the most part. TV ratings are still pretty good. The ticket sales were coming up last year as the pandemic situation got better. I think people want want baseball in their lives. So I'm going March 31. I'm sort of in the same boys where it's like my heart, like I would like a common sense say, like there's too much on the line here. They will find a way to get something done the 20 on the 28th and we'll have baseball on the 31st. But my head is also saying these are the same owners who locked them out, did not negotiate 43 days. Just yesterday, tried to get the mediator again, and the, and the players again said no. The question I have with this is, do the owners care about losing games? Because if they do, they will lose games. Because they, if they don't mind it, we're going to be sitting here for a while. I think they're, I think it's unfortunate the owners here, particularly the small markets who would rather get a win over the union and keep the salaries down than keep, then start baseball on time. And that worries me. 
I think you're right. Uh, so so the, the pessimistic part is I, I remember, yeah, there's owners like that. And these are the same guys. Mike, take yourself back. It's now February of 2022. Try and take yourself back to June of 2020. There was nothing on TV. Nothing was going on. These guys had the opportunity to be in the spotlight, and they couldn't get it done. Now that that scares me a lot because it's just it's same guys in the room, same same guys, bad track record. I'm still going March 31, but um, you know, I wouldn't put too you're not you're not too much confidence in that prediction. Yeah, it's like you're putting like your console is about like a three. I would say we're starting on time. Three or four, yeah, yeah. You know, I'd be ask me again though uh, on Sunday, and and hopefully I have a hopefully on su- Sunday I'll have a clearer picture. But I'm just I don't trust these guys. My my heart tells me that they're going to do it. My head tells me there's so much money at stake, but my head also tells me. Well, these guys have a track record of failing. Why, why should I trust them? I said, I think about a week ago when I was talking to somebody about this on the podcast, about Joe D'Alvizio uh, Joe and the Super Bowl rehab. We, at the end, we said, when is baseball started? He said May 1. I said April 15. So I'm going to stick with that right now. I think we are going to lose some games here for, for somebody bends. And, and yeah, I, I could see that. And I think April 15 it's kind of the point where if there's no baseball on April 15, then people are saying, all right, there's some, there's now now people are mad. I agree with you. I think the first two weeks of the season, you know, the diehard fans, everybody loves opening day. And then the first couple of weeks of the season, the diehard fan likes it. But the average guy doesn't really care about the first two weeks of the season. It's not, it's not really baseball anyway. Uh, you know, the starting pitcher goes four innings and then they got to get him out of the game because he's on a pitch count. The batters are, you know, the guys one for 10. Uh, so players haven't really started establishing themselves in their seasons yet. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think you can get to April 15 without there being a huge uprise, uh, revolt, or outrage. More May 1, though. If you get to May 1, I think you're going to have a big problem. Yeah, I think even not getting, having game April 15 is a big problem because. I don't know if you realize this is the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the collar barrier. And that was the day, April 15th, when it happened. If you were not playing baseball on that day, that's a very terrible look for the league. Yeah, no, I, I did not realize that. But uh, that that makes sense as I do the math in my head. Yeah, you, that, that's another bad PR thing that baseball can't deal with. I'm going March, with March 31. Uh, but if I had to make a second choice, I'd, April 15th would be my second choice. Yeah, so we will see what happens, Phil. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mike. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll let's let's keep our eyes on this, and I'm really hoping that uh, that over the weekend we get the good news. The two minute drill. All right, two minute drill time. Talk of the Knicks, and it's hard to believe considering how things went last season. I think started this season. The Knicks are back to being a dumpster fire. They had the all-star break last week. They blew three 20-point leads in the past seven games, which is absurd. If you're up 20-plus points in the NBA game, you need to find a way to win the game. They blew that three times. They hit the break 25-34, and 12th place in the East, three and a half games out of the final spot in the playing tournament, and their schedule out of the break is absurdly difficult. So if you had hope that, you know, maybe Julius Randle's playing a little better and carries momentum forward to the second half of the season here. First, the second half is only 23 games, so there's not a lot of basketball left for the Knicks to play anyway. Here's what they have coming out of the break. They host Miami on Friday. Leads the East. Home and home with the Sixers, who just got James Harden. And that second game kicks off a six-game road trip. They go after the Philly. Out to Phoenix. Out to L.A. take on the Clippers. Out to Sacramento on a back-to-back out to Dallas, out to Memphis, out to Brooklyn. Those are very, very difficult games. And the Knicks will be underdogs in all of them. How many are you getting on that trip? One. Maybe being Sacramento, if everything goes your way. 
And if you're going that bad, you're about 10, 11, you're already 9 out of 500, you're about 15, 8 out of 500, and you're coming home, you're basically tank, blowing it up and letting the kids play. And we're going to be honest here. No one thought the Knicks would be fourth place in the East again if they were last year. Last year was definitely an overachieving year. Everything went right. Julius Randle played at an all-NBA level. But the conference got better in the offseason. Boston got better. Miami got better. The Bulls got better. Brooklyn got better. The Cavaliers got better. The Knicks definitely overachieved a year ago. The problem here is that, yes, you expected the Knicks to not be fourth. You expected the Knicks to be right there, at least in the playing tournament, with a shot to get in. The Knicks could not afford to backslide where the season's now over in February. You're trying to build yourself into a destination for these stars who, that was the whole point that the Leon Rose, William Worldwide West situation here had going on was we're going to attract the stars. Tom Thibodeau certainly deserves some blame here. His rotation did not work very well. His team as a starting unit is bad. He doesn't seem to have his finger on the pulse like he did last year. The team's not respond the same way. The bigger issue here, besides Thibodeau, Thibodeau has had his faults. This front office has struck on every single move they made. They gave Julius Randle a big-time contract extension. They said, okay, we got to reward one of our own. He was the most improved player in the league. He can be at least the number two guy for us, and we'll strike some goodwill with players on the league by taking care of our own. That extension blew up in their face. Bringing Evan Fournier, not the greatest fit on paper, particularly does not work because he doesn't play a lick of defense and he's inconsistent on offense. Kemba Walker, at the time, low risk, high reward, and it's blown up because his knees aren't as good. He is not a good fit for this team right now. Resign a trio of Derek Rose, Nerlens Noel, Alec Burks. That has not worked either. Noel can barely stand on the floor. Rose has been out for a while. Alec Burks is mismatched. They traded a first-round pick for Cam Reddish a couple months ago. Because they said, okay, distress asset, we get a young player, and we can put him in the rotation, and he'll see, and he, he blossoms, he plays with RJ again, and everything goes well. He can't get on the floor. This leads to one question for me. Where the hell is Leon Rose? The man's not spoken to the media since September. I think he's had a grand total of about three press conferences since he took over the job. There is absolutely no accountability with the Knicks. Leon Rose has not to answer anyone at this point. It's a big F you to the fans to spend their hard money to watch this garbage. And now you're hearing the rumblings that World Wide West thinks that Tom Thibodeau is the problem. And I am sorry. You do not get to fire the NBA coach of the year the next season because you screwed up the roster. The only way Tom Thibodeau goes is if the entire front office is going with him. The only positive the next of the of the Leon Rose era so far. They have a few extra draft picks. They have an intriguing core of young players. RJ Barrett has a chance to still look like a very good NBA player. Cam Reddish has a chance to develop into a good player. Obi Toppin, Emmanuel Quickly, Quentin Grimes, Miles McBride, a bunch of guys who can play roles on, on a winning team. That is not good enough, though. The front office has to do better. And James Dolan better not let them say, Tom Thibodeau is the reason why we're not winning. Every defender knows that's not the reason they aren't winning. Hopefully, Fiora smart enough to see that and says, hey, you work with him or you're all gone. With that, I want to end the show. I want to thank Phil Frey for coming on this week, talking about the lockout. We'll see where we go as the week progresses. We are trying to get closer. And again, whenever a deal does happen, we will break it down on the podcast. You want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at the sad situation surrounding the Matt Harvey news came out last week from his testimony in the trial involving the death of Tyler Skaggs, check out the blog over justinthesuffering.wordpress.com. Also want to shout out the Sky Guys podcast feed here. We took a little bit of a break after the book of Boba Fett ended. There's a feedback show, season recap up in the podcast feed for that. So you want to check that out, go to the Sky Guys podcast feed and your favorite podcast platforms. You can find it there. So any of the stuff in between the season will be on that feed only. So if you want all that good stuff, make sure you subscribe to the Sky Guys podcast. You also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. 
And that's going to do it for this week's podcast. Coming up next week on the show, we are going to dive more into the world of college basketball because don't forget, it's going to be March. We're close to Selection Sunday. Some college hoops, hopefully the CBA, and more. So we have a better week than Knicks fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.